Hello, and welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game and see if that story bites us back. My name is Bill. This is episode 58. Thanks for listening. Hello again, everybody. We're here. It's Sunday morning as I record this. The coffee is... Eh, it's okay. Not the best at making coffee. The jelly donut was tasty, except for the tiny detail that it wasn't actually a jelly donut. Turned out to be a custard-filled donut, and uh, I don't want to call anyone out by name, although the name rhymes with Dunkin' Donuts, but they were a little stingy with the custard. Some people are philosophically opposed to custard-filled donuts. They prefer the jelly, or perhaps the cream-filled. Those are all good. I personally don't mind a custard-filled donut, except when, one, I'm surprised by it, and two, they're a little, uh, they hold back a little on the, uh, on the custard. Just saying, you know, 21st century, things are tough right now for a lot of people. Uh, it's nice to have a little, um, a little joy, a little something to look forward to, and I think asking for a jelly donut that's actually a jelly donut is not too much to ask. But, you know, there are bigger problems in the world, like, for example, figuring out which Atari game to play next. But we've got a good one this week. Uh, I'm excited. We had a couple of rough weeks on the show, you know, looking at you, Sneak and Pete, and Star Fox. But we've got a good one. Uh, oh, we had Chopper Command in there. That was pretty good. Now we got a, a solid game this week, you know, spoiler. Uh, I kind of like the one we did this week, so I'm excited. But first, the news. Uh, my sister-in-law on Facebook sent me a, a link to an article about a new book coming out called History of Digital Games, Developments in Art, Design, and Interaction by... Andrew Williams. Andrew Williams is a professor um, in the uh, at the University of Wisconsin Stout, and he has written this book. University of Wisconsin Stout and other universities around the country offer bachelor degree programs in game design, and Andrew Williams is a professor in that program at the University of Wisconsin. He is, to be more specific, an assistant professor in the School of Art and Design at University of Wisconsin Stout, and he tells the story of sort of the evolution of games from the first half of the 20th century when of course there was no video game industry to actually he goes back farther than that he goes all the way back to the 1800s uh with games that they had like strength testers at county fairs all the way up to present day with the high-tech animated games you know where gaming is a 30 billion dollar industry 2400 companies or so employing 220,000 people and this book history of digital games developments in art design and interaction is his effort to trace the evolution of games from the 19th century, basically. It is a university textbook, but the publisher, of course, is saying that it could appeal to anyone. It is available from the publisher. I will try to remember to put a link to the article that I read, a little interview with Williams, uh, if that's something that appeals to you. There is a... The, the book, although it's a textbook, is available on Amazon, but it was something like a hundred and something dollars for a hardcover textbook. Uh, to buy it, right? Textbooks are usually expensive anyway. There was a Kindle version, I think, that was only 50-something, but even that's a little steep. Uh, so I haven't picked this one up, but if uh, you're super nerdy to the point where you want to read a textbook about video games, uh, this might be a book for you. In other news, there is a book that came out just recently that I did pick up. Honestly, it was $2 on Kindle. I think there's a paperback version also. It's called the A to Z of Atari 2600 Games Volume 1 by Kieran Hawken. Uh, I got a Kindle version, of course, which means, of course, it is available on Amazon, and it is exactly what it sounds like. It's a, a, a book with a collection of reviews of various games. I think 
the approach was they took three games for each letter of the alphabet and wrote a little review, and this is a collection of those reviews. So let's see. This week we're doing Toot and Tom. Spoiler. Is that in here, I wonder? I'm looking right now. Uh, that one is not in here. Let's see. Oh, Chopper Command is in here. We just did Chopper Command last episode, I think. Let's see what they say about Chopper Command. Chopper Command is without doubt... I'm reading the interview. Reading the review now. Chopper Command is without doubt one of the fastest, most frantic shoot-em-ups on the system. The object of the game is identical to the classic arcade game, Defender. Hey, I made that comparison too. Fly over the planet's surface, shooting the enemies and protecting the humans. Instead of being in space, though, Chopper Command is set on Earth itself. Your spaceship is now an armed helicopter, the humans are replaced with a convoy of moving supply trucks, and the aliens become enemy aircraft. Instead of the enemy picking up the people you are trying to protect, like in Defender, in this game they just shoot them so you really can't hang around and go for those last minute saves. Once again you have a radar scanner to see where the enemy are, and the game still scrolls in both directions. There are no, there are no smart bombs or warp gates like in Defender, making your weapon only your only tool. Graphically, Chopper Command is really nice with its beautiful sunset and flicker-free sprites. Hey, I said that too. At least about the sunset. The sound consists of lots of loud and proud sound effects. Gameplay-wise, this is a much better game than Atari's Defender, but just sure of the brilliant sequel. All in all, highly recommended. Okay, I don't know that I call it would call it better than Defender. In my head, they're both kind of the same thing. And I didn't know there was a Chopper Command sequel. I will have to check that out. Uh, so there you go. There you go. This little sample. Uh, the whole book is... You know, those reviews. And it looks like they gave Chopper Command 8 out of 10. Uh, so that's a pretty good score. Um, what's Dark Chambers? Sorry, I'm reading a book while I'm doing this audio podcast. That's probably riveting entertainment for you. Um, but there's a 1988 game called Dark Chambers that I've never heard of. I'll have to read that review later. Uh, there's Defender. What they give Defender? Ooh, ouch. He, this guy totally crushed Defender. He gave it 3 out of 10. When arcade games were converted to the 2600, the programmers often had to make big sacrifices to squeeze them in. This sometimes meant they barely resembled their coin-op parent. The example of this that everyone talks about is Pac-Man, but for me, Defender is a far more shocking example. Gone are undulating mountains of the planet below, replacing it with a blocky cityscape. They also took out loads of the enemies, giving you less to shoot at, but perhaps this is a good thing when you consider the most heinous part of this game, the actual shooting. Every time you fire your weapon, the ship vanishes. No joke. Anyone who's played Defender before knows that you have to fire almost constantly in this game to survive. I kind of thought Chopper Command was like that too, though. It's like your ship has a... That's me, by the way. No, this is him again. It's like your ship has a Klingon cloaking device, but a totally useless one. This horrible piece of coding pretty much ruins the game completely. Even putting that aside, there's just nothing that impresses about this title. The only plus point I can mention is that soon afterwards, Atari went from producing probably their worst arcade conversion... In this, to arguably their best in the sequel, Defender 2. Okay, so maybe in the other review he was talking about, the sequel he was talking about was Defender 2. Maybe there isn't a Chopper Command 2. Uh, I guess if there is, let me know. I actually thought the shooting in Defender looked kind of cool. I mean, yeah, the ship disappears, but that didn't really bother me. I don't really ever remember playing Defender in the arcade. Maybe if I had played Defender a lot in the arcade and then saw what they did for the Atari port, I would have been more upset about it. But in my head, Defender and Chopper Command are both kind of fun. They're not the best games ever, but, you know, they're okay. Yeah, and so Defender got 3 out of 10 stars. Even though, essentially, to him and me both, Defender and Chopper Command on the Atari both kind of look the same. But Chopper Command got 8 out of 10 stars. So, that's the kind of controversial material you will find in this book. A, the A to Z of Atari 2600 Games Volume 1. Go check it out. I am getting no money whatsoever to say that. 
Uh, I even paid money to buy the book. Uh, I just think it's kind of a fun little thing to have. In other news, not about books, but this time about music. Weird Al Yankovic is putting out a box set, sort of the culmination of his 14 studio albums, along with the 15th disc that includes various other odds and ends, rare material, and whatnot. And I guess there's a big photo book and things. But the thing that's most of interest to us on this show is there is finally going to be an official release of his parody of the Beatles song Taxman, which of course is called Pac-Man. There has been a, a bootleg release floating around the internet for a long time, but this is a song he did way back before he was anybody. Yeah, so we're going back, what, to the early 80s, late 70s, you know, shortly after Pac-Man came out, I guess, and it was a big craze, and, and he, like everyone else, was playing Pac-Man. And I read an article, an uh, re- interview with him. He was a big arcade dude. He played uh, Glaxion and Pac-Man, and he mentioned some other ones. Um, if I think of it, I'll try to put a link to that article. It was a Nerdist interview with him. I'll try to put that in the show notes as well. And he wrote this parody, sort of using his own crude equipment to record this parody literally on it, like a cassette recorder. It sent it to the Dr. Demento radio show, and they played it for a while. And then the Beatles' lawyers sent a nice little letter that said, yeah, knock it off. So they did, and for years, not much happened after that. But over time, Weird Al got to know George Harrison's son, and they became pretty good friends. And it turned out George Harrison was uh, a fan of Weird Al. And his son helped sort of uh, be the go-between between Weird Al and the Harrison estate to try and get the rights to, to say okay to the song, to the parody song. And they did. And they also, Weird Al in the article says he was actually more afraid of Namco, um, what they would say about doing a, a Pac-Man song. But it turns out they were pretty cool with it. So it's out. And uh, and you can hear it, at least officially. Probably a lot of people have heard it already. Even he acknowledges that. Said, yeah, there's been a bootleg copy out there for a long time. But now it's going to be out officially as part of this, this compilation. So check that out as well. All right. Well, that's enough shilling for other people's merchandise that I get no money for whatsoever. So let's move on to this week's game, for which I also get no money whatsoever. This week's game is Tutankham, Parker Brothers' 1983 port of the Konami arcade game. As we look at the manual for this game, we're told that inside King Tut's tomb... By the way, King Tut was not King Tutankham. He was Tutankhamun. But as I've read, that wouldn't fit on the cabinet for the arcade game. So they said, eh, knock the last couple of letters off, it'll be fine. Uh, so that's how Tutankham was born. So the manual tells us, Inside King Tut's tomb are treasures beyond your wildest dreams. They can be yours if you dare to take them. Supernatural creatures roam the mazes of the tomb, guarding the treasures at all costs. Your only defenses against them are your laser gun and your wits. Blast away, snatch the loot, escape through secret passageways, before it's too late. And when you see a key, take that too. It will unlock the door to the next chamber and the next adventure. Enter King Tut's tomb and see what awaits you. If you dare. So, okay, I studied uh, anthropology. I actually majored in anthropology in college. Nobody really knows why, especially my parents, but I did. Part of that was studying archaeology. And a little bit about, obviously, when you study archaeology, you talk a little bit about ancient Egypt. 
I don't remember anywhere in my textbooks, granted Andrew Williams didn't write them, but in my textbooks I don't remember anything about laser guns or supernatural creatures. I'm just saying, this game might not be historically accurate. The object of the game is to score as many points as you can by recovering treasures and defeating the guardians of the tomb. Uh, we're using the joystick for this one. Left joystick controller for a one-player game, both joysticks for, obviously, two-player games. When the game begins, you're an archaeologist with three lives. You're in the first of four burial chambers inside King Tut's tomb. Take a minute to look at the illustration at the left. Here, I'll hold it up closer to the microphone so you can see it. There you go. Basically, at the top right of the screen, it shows how many laser flashes you have. shows you uh, where your archaeologist starts the game shows you how many archaeologists you have left. There's a time band at the, at the bottom of the screen, so showing how much time you got left, obviously. And then uh, your score. As soon as you press reset, start moving the archaeologist through the maze. These are the things you must do. And you know that because it's in bold print. Find the key. Inside each chamber is a key. As soon as you see it, go after it. You'll need it in order to enter the next chamber at the end of the maze. Once you have the key, you'll see it in the archaeologist's hand. Watch out for creature nests. Throughout the maze are creatures' nests. Creatures of varying speeds and species can spring from them at any time. Just before they do, however, you'll hear a slurp-like sound. When you hear it, get ready to fire at the approaching creature. When I was playing a little bit before we recorded today, uh, and doing the field report and whatnot, I don't remember noticing the, f the slurp sound. The creatures just sort of seem to appear. Uh, I don't know. I'll have to listen closer next time. To fire your laser gun, press the fire button while you move the joystick either left or right, depending on the direction in which you wish to fire. You cannot fire up or down, which gets a little frustrating, actually. If you're in a tight spot and can't seem to fire your way out, you can activate the laser flash. Just hold down the fire button when you move the joystick up. The laser flash will cause all the creatures on screen to disappear, just long enough for you to escape. You'll start with three flashes, so use them wisely. The problem with that is it's really easy to unintentionally hold down the fire button and use up a laser flash even when you didn't intend to. So that gets frustrating too. Pick up treasure. Various kinds of exotic and priceless treasures are located throughout the maze. You'll find them tucked away in alcoves. Just remember that you don't have to go after each one, especially if it's too risky. As the astute archaeologist knows, some treasures are more valuable than others. It's up to you to decide which ones you most desire. Good luck. Find the secret passageways. Secret passageways let you zip from one side of the chamber to the other. They can let you escape dangerous situations. Oftentimes, it's the only way to continue through the maze. Because a secret is a secret, it's up to you to find out where each one is located. Neener, neener, neener. Watch the time band. The time band monitors the amount of ammunition in your laser gun. Which is confusing, because they called it a time band. Anyway, the longer you remain in the maze, the faster the ammo is used up. So try to complete the maze as quickly as you can. Your ammo supply replenishes with each new chamber. Open the door. At the end of each maze, you'll find a door. As long as the archaeologist has a key in hand, he'll unlock the door when he reaches it. Behind it lies another fabulous treasure and the entrance to the next chamber. If the archaeologist has no key, when he reaches the door, he must go back and get it. The game ends when you've lost the last of your three lives. To play again at the same level, press reset. There are four levels of difficulty. Each level is comprised of the four different chambers. If you complete the four chambers of level one with at least one life, with at least one life, you'll proceed to the first chamber of level two. If you complete the four chambers of the level two, with at least one remaining life, you'll proceed to the first chamber of level 3, and so on. Complete all four chambers of level 4, and you'll repeat level 1. As you move from one level to the next, the creatures appear more frequently, and your ammo depletes faster. Each time you complete chambers 1 through 4, you receive a bonus laser flash. As you forge deeper into the tomb, you'll see that inside each chamber is a different maze, each one a bit more difficult than the last. Different treasures and different creatures. Chamber 1. The creatures you find here are Royal Cobra Snakes. 
spirits of the goddess Wadjet. Desert scorpions, sacred animals to the goddess Selkit. Giant bats. I think in the field report I called it a bird thing, but it was actually a giant bat. They've been locked inside the tomb for generations, so I'm guessing they have to pee. The treasures you'll find in Chamber 1 are a silver crown, a royal ring, a ruby, a gold chalice, a gold crown, and behind the unlocked door lies the map that shows the way through Chamber 2. Now they tell me. And the map icon is just the letters M-A-P. Chamber 2, you find turtles, a vicious breed that made a home inside the tomb when the Nile River overflowed in the 10th century, jackals, and blue condors. The treasures you'll find are a gold crown, which is actually pink. Interesting. A ring, an emerald, a goblet, a bust, which is the head of Amun-Ra, the sun god. And behind the unlocked door lies a vase used to carry sacred Nile River water in coronation ceremonies. Chamber 3 has desert snakes, which are spirits of the snake goddess Mertziger, protector of desert tombs. Lion heads, spirit of Sekhmet, lioness-headed goddess of war. And killer moths, the ancient species of gigantic and poisonous, especially we're guessing to wool sweaters. The treasures you'll find are trident, ring, herb, diamond, candelabra, and behind the unlocked door lies a statue of the cat god Bastet. Not bastard, don't make that mistake. Goddess of joy and preventer of disease. Chamber 4. You find a mutant virus, inbreeding for generations. No human can survive their deadly potency. Monkeys, uh, which are spirits of the moon god Thoth, and a mystery weapon. High speed terror! Their invention is a secret known only to the ancient Egyptians. If you see it, can you name it? I don't know. Uh, the treasures you'll find are a neck ring, an amulet, a palm fan, a crystal, a blue zircon, dagger, and behind the unlocked door lies the most coveted treasure of all, the death mask of Tutankham himself. The manual also gives a breakdown of uh, the points that you can get for creatures, which range from 1 to 3 points, and then the treasure points looks like range anywhere from 15 points for a crown to, um, uh, looks like the highest is 80 for the f- for a fan. So there you go. And the, the, the game selection, there are eight games. The fir- games one through four are one player, five through eight are two player. And as the number gets higher, the degree of difficulty of the game gets higher as well. I think I mentioned earlier that Tutankham started out as a 1982 arcade game. It was developed by Konami and released by Stern in the United States. It was originally called Tutankhamun, but it was discovered that the full name could not fit on the arcade cabinet, so the title was shortened. I mentioned that earlier too. Uh, It's one of six games chosen to appear in the Life Magazine photo session conducted at Twin Galaxies uh, on November 7, 1982, featuring video game record holders of the 1982 era gathered for a group photograph. The Tutankham champion in the photo is Mark Robichek of Mountain View, California. If you listen to Pie Factory podcast, uh, hi, Sean and Jim, you've heard a lot about Twin Galaxies. They talk about uh, that arcade a lot, and apparently it was a big deal to Life Magazine as well. I wonder if uh, those guys know Mark Robichek. If you do, guys, let me know. Tutankham was ported to the Atari 2600, ColecoVision, and Television, and VIC-20. Ports for the Odyssey 2 and the Atari 8-bit family of computers were being developed by Parker Brothers in 1983, but were not published. Tutankham is included in Konami Classic Series, Arcade Hits for the Nintendo DS, where it's renamed Horror Maze. Clones of uh, Tutankham include King Tut's Tomb, Atari 8-bit, Cuthbert Enters the Tombs, Commodore 64, 1984, The Touchstone, Tandy Color Computer, 1984, and Dungeon Lords, Atari 8-bit, 1988. Tutankhamun 
ruled ancient Egypt from 1332 to 1323 BC, which was the New Kingdom or 18th Dynasty. He was preceded by Smentar or Neferneferutan and succeeded by Ai, who was his granduncle grandfather in law. His consort was his half sister and cousin, Ankesenamun. His chil- he had uh, two stillborn daughters. Uh, his father was Akhenaten, and his mother was the younger lady. He was born, Tutankhamun was, in 1341 B.C., died somewhere around 1323 B.C. at age 18. Uh, there are various spellings for the name Tutankhamun, although most of the time he's just called King Tut. Uh, his full name, Tutan, his full original name, Tutankhaten, means living image of Aten, while Tutankhamun means living image of Amun. In hieroglyphs, the name Tutankhamun was typically written Amun Tut Ankh because of a scribal custom that placed a divine name at the beginning of a phrase to show appropriate reverence. He is possibly also the. Oh boy. Nibureya, Nibureya of the Amarna letters, and likely the 18th dynasty king Rathotis, who, according to Manetho, an ancient historian, had reigned for nine years a figure that conforms with Flavius Josephus' version of Manetho's epitome. The 1922 discovery by Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon of Tutankhamun's nearly intact tomb received worldwide press coverage. It sparked renewed interest in ancient Egypt, for which Tutankhamun's mask, now in the Egyptian Museum, remains the popular symbol. Exhibits of artifacts from his tomb have toured the world. In February 2010, the result of DNA tests confirmed that he was the son of Akhenaten. Can't imagine that episode of the Mori Povich show. Akhenaten, you are the father of this ancient Egyptian pharaoh. And then uh, Akhenaten throws the sarcophagus around the room, and pandemonium ensues. His mother was Akhenaten's sister and wife, whose name is unknown, but whose remains are positively identified as the younger lady mummy found in a particular location. The mysterious death of a few of those who excavate Tutankhamun's tomb have been popularly attributed to the curse of the pharaohs. There was some other stuff I read later on that said that's sort of the legend, but pretty much everybody who was involved in the discovery went on to live long lives. At least the main people, like uh, Carter uh, and so forth, had actually quite long lives after the discovery and died of natural causes. So we aren't worried particularly, no more than usual, that playing this game will put a curse on uh, our head, my head, and then, of course, your head, for listening to this, because much like The Ring, where if you watch the show on the tape, you're doomed. We all know that listening to this podcast, you know, your fate is sealed. So, sorry. It was free, at least. Given his age, the king probably had very powerful advisors, presumably including General Horemeb and Grand Vizier I. Horemheb... Grand Vizier I was also the one who succeeded him after he died. He had a lord of the land as well. He made a lot of changes to how the Egyptians would worship their gods, did a lot of building projects, worked really hard to restore diplomatic relations with other kingdoms, where his dad had not necessarily done so, or at least his predecessor had not done so well with that. Tutankhamun was a, a small dude. He was about 5 feet 11 inches tall, so he was relatively tall, but he was pretty thin. Large front teeth and an overbite, and a slightly cleft palate. He might have had a mild case of scoliosis. He had some deformities in his left foot, which means he might have used a cane, and there were a lot of canes found in his tomb. It also looks like he had malaria, and that actually might, you know, 
the weakened immune system, along with the injury to his foot of some sort, uh, all that put together might have been what killed him. Although the actual cause of his death is still under debate. Seems like I saw something on the History Channel years ago trying to figure out what killed Tutankhamun and theorizing that he might have actually been murdered. But that's not our concern today. If you'd like to read more about King Tut, I would direct you to the Steve Martin song, King Tut. Or, you know, you could, I guess, look up actual historical records if you want to be accurate with your facts. And of course, in the modern era, accurate facts are, you know, sort of out of fashion. So I'll leave it up to you. After the break, we go looking for some ancient cough drops for our ancient sarcophagus. Well, Harry, my old buddy, how you been? It's been a long time. You still doing the running through the jungle picking up treasure thing? Yeah, that's great, man. Uh, yeah, me too. Uh, I'm still collecting treasures myself. I do mine mostly in uh, secret chambers and ancient pyramids. and I shoot my foes with a laser gun and run for my life from snakes and viruses. And it's all pretty cool. But hey, you know, your thing with, you know, running, jumping, and swinging on vines, that's cool too, man. You know, you do you. Well, anyway, see ya uh, next week, maybe. We'll have coffee or something. Yeah, I know, you gotta run. That's kind of what you do. Me? I gotta go get new ammo for my laser gun. Yeah, catch you later. Okay, here's the thing with Tutankhamun. Um, looking at the screen kind of makes me nauseous. Um, I like the look of this game. I like that there's a lot going on. Um, I do have this weird thing. I don't know if it's a thing with my controller. Oops, the bird thing got me. Um, my guy doesn't... It's hard for me to direct my guy where he needs to go. Um... So I don't know if it's a controller thing or a game thing, but, you know, it's a 1983 game, but it looks really good, I think. I don't know. The colors are historically accurate, but I haven't been inside a lot of ancient tombs, uh, you know, ancient pyramids, so what do I know? The, the uh, enemies, I will say, are relentless. Almost too relentless. I'm playing this uh, field report on the easiest setting. And I'm already dead. I'm out of lives. So, um, you know, it's a little bit like life, I guess. Even at the easiest setting, if you're incompetent enough, you're gonna fail. On that positive note, back to you in the studio. So, in episode 57, just last week, of the podcast, we did Star Fox. Which is, let's be honest, a crappy looking game from 1983. Tutankham is also from 1983, and it looks great. I mean, it looks like a 1983 game, so it's not, you know, gorgeous graphics like we would get now, obviously, or even like you would get by the end of the 80s, but it looks really good. I mean, I can tell what the stuff on screen is. I think I said in the field report that the screen was a little jumpy for me, and I had a little trouble controlling where the dude moved, but, you know, once you learn to compensate for that, and I'm not even entirely sure that's the game, I don't know if that might be something with my controller 
or it is the game. I just think it looks good. I never played Tutankham in the arcade that I can remember, so I don't really have that to compare it to. Um, but but I like this game. I'm even going to go out on a limb here and, and probably anger a lot of people. I think it might actually look better than Adventure. I'd have to play both of them a little bit more to say which one I enjoy playing more, but at the moment, I, I think I would, you know, given a choice between the two, I think I would gravitate back to Tutankham and play that some more. There's just a lot of stuff going on on screen that I think is really good. I would recommend this game. I would be curious to see. Uh, I just didn't have a chance to review, have a chance to look, but I don't know what kind of reviews on the internet this game has gotten. Maybe volume two of the book that I talked about earlier will have Tutankham in it, and I can see what they think about it. Um, I don't think Adventure was in that book either, so I really can't even look at that right now. Okay, so we got a lot to work with here as far as the story, right? Um... Actual historical figure, you know, King Tut, an actual historical period, ancient Egypt. Um, we have Howard Carter, famous archaeologist who found the tomb in 1922. So I, I think clearly what we're going to be looking at here is a story about, you know, the life and end of King Tut and the discovery. Image is everything. King Tut had a huge image to live up to, even if he was slightly built. There were still a lot that he had to carry on those narrow shoulders. People stand in line to see the boy king. He's the pharaoh born in Arizona, moved to Babylonia. If you believe actor, comedian, writer, and evidently ancient Egyptian historian Steve Martin, and you should. So, you know, and he was young, right? He was like 18. And he was all about, you know, if he's like every other 18-year-old, he was all about looking good, right? Even in his death, he wanted to look good. Perhaps even more so. I mean, this was an era when pretty much... You just kind of hung around and did whatever you thought you needed to do to make the gods happy so that when you died, you'd be set for the afterlife. I mean, these guys weren't like those barbarians in Westeros, though more boobage would be nice. They wanted, you know, in Westeros, when you die, they, or, you know, when it's your time, they just come chop your head off and stick it on a stake. Not so with the ancient Egyptians. Tut, we're sure, wanted to put some thought into this. He may not know when he was going to go, and history tells us that there's some mystery about how he went, but he wanted to be ready when he did. So he, of course, met with a death planner. What's a death planner? Well, hieroglyphics will tell us that it's a man with bird feet and wings. You know, some naive layman will look at that same hieroglyph and tell you it's just a bird, dude. But we know better. We host a podcast. So, like we said, image is everything. That's what Egyptian pharaoh Tutankhamun's dad, Akhenaten, always told him. Of course, his dad also said, don't leave the pyramid door open, we're not paying to heat the whole desert, and we worship these scarabs for a reason, young man, now clean your plate. His dad was kind of a dork is what we're saying. So, Tut knew his people were big on pleasing the gods and making a good show for what comes after death. Meanwhile, in November 1922, famed world explorer Howard Tarter's lesser-known brother, Bubbles Carter, a crackerjack accountant with an unfortunate nickname left over from a childhood of flatulence, was more worried about living a life out of the shadow of his more adventurous, more handsome, and yes, less flatulent, brother. Carter had been retained in 1915, Howard Carter, that is, had been retained in 1915 to find the tomb, and he'd been yammering on to his brother about how he was really close now, so Bubbles had to work fast. When he heard that his dear brother Howard was onto this big discovery, he made plans to beat him to it. Well... Actually, he made plans to have 20 pizzas delivered to Howard's house so that he'd be broke and wouldn't have any money for the Tut expedition. 
But unfortunately, pizzerias were still scarce in 1922, and delivery was non-existent until after World War II. So the restaurant that he called just laughed at him. So instead, Bubba's decided to steal whatever Tut artifacts were in that tomb for himself, and rob his brother of the glory. Finding the tomb wasn't hard, even for Bubbles Carter. Howard was a great archaeologist, but he was also a blabbermouth. All Bubbles had to do was listen and get his gal Madge to write down what Howard said, because focus wasn't Bubbles' strong suit. Hey, look, puppies! Anyway, Bubbles found the tomb pretty quick, not even deterred by the sign out front that said, Seriously, keep walking. This ain't a tomb. Flashback to ancient Egypt. Tut asks his death planner. I like cats. Can I have some cats in my tomb? The death planner's like, whatever, kid, and goes back to eating his ancient birdseed. Inside the tomb today, Bubbles curses as he steps on something hard, nearly twisting his ankle. Hmm, petrified hairball. Interesting. Flashback to ancient Egypt. Though I will have perished from the earth, Tut tells the death planner. The opulence, the power of my tomb, shall last through the ages. The death planner dive bombs avian poop on Tut's shiny new sarcophagus. Back to 1922. Remember that focus problem? I told you Bubbles had? Yeah, his interest in this little prank is waning fast. He gets increasingly frustrated by the succession of door after door that he has to unlock to get through this, through these chambers of this tomb. And the stuff he's finding is okay, he supposes. A lot of flower pots with not only dead but ancient plants. Some coins that look more like video game tokens than gold. But it's hard to know for sure since video games haven't been invented yet. He did find a paper Burger King crown that he's enjoying wearing around, even though he has no idea what Burger King is, because it also hasn't been invented yet. In his frustration, Bubbles starts fumbling the keys, cursing so much that Madge tells him to watch his mouth. You think it's so easy? You try, he fumes. Finally, there's only one more room to go, the big one. Tut's mummy is going to be in that room. But do they have the right key? No matter. Madge lands a neat roundhouse kick to the middle of the door, shattering it. Eureka! Bubble steps inside this last chamber, triumphant. Take that, Howard. Eat it, Howard. By which we mean all that pizza we sent you. Or would have. Man, that would have been cool. Anyway, what were we talking about? Are you my mummy? Tut can't stop giggling at this joke. The death planner stopped long ago, but must fake it or be summarily executed. Tut says, Like, I know I'll be mummified in a tribute to Abbott and Costello meet the mummy, which debuts after cinema is invented thousands of years from now, but dude, I'm a freaking pharaoh. Can't I have, I don't know, a gold mask or something? Ooh, we could call it a death mask. Yeah, I like that. The death planner sighs wearily. He's just happy the ancient Egyptians love beer. Back in the present, wakey-wakey, tutty-tut-tut. Bubbles crows, farting joyfully, though his crowing turns into a velociraptor of rage. God damn looters! The last chamber, which should be Tut's final resting place, is empty. It's a little bit like Geraldo Rivera finding Al Capone's vault, only not finding anything at all in there. Well, to be fair to Bubbles, the chamber isn't completely empty. Hey, look at this, Madge says, pointing at the exterior wall of the chamber. There, pinned to yet another door, is a note. Dear Bubbles, my dear brother, I win again. But don't feel bad. I had a bunch of future pizza delivered to your house. Regards, Howard. So back in ancient Egypt, Tut dies, perhaps mysteriously, and is remembered for being young when he did so, but not for much else. And people only remember that during the field trip 
to the museum for school and for only so long as it takes to read the little plaque on the exhibit before they move on to the gift shop. Howard Tarter, meanwhile, is remembered as a great explorer, though only by archaeology students and Jeopardy contestants. Bubbles Carter didn't even live long enough to see the invention of Beano, so he went on suffering in silence. Stinky, stinky silence. Perhaps that was the curse of King Tut. Ooh. And that's our show. Thanks to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for Creative Commons' use of his songs, Reformat, Take a Chance, and Pinball Spring. You can email Atari Bytes at ataribytes2016 at gmail.com. Show notes, other episodes, and other links are found at ataribytes.lipson.com. Find the show on Stitcher, Google Play Music, and iTunes, among many other podcatchers. When the option is offered, do please leave a review. Your mummy won't be happy if you neglect your responsibility by not leaving an iTunes review. Like the show on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Atari Bytes, or follow me personally at Carnival of Glee. You can also help support the show financially on our Patreon page and by shopping at our Zazzle.com store, AB underscore pod underscore store. Also, do please check out my other podcast, It's a Podcast, Charlie Brown. A new episode drops on the 15th of every month. Next time on Atari Bytes, Night Driver. So until next time, go play some old games. They've missed you.